Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening, and thank you for joining us on That's Truth tonight. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and let me say welcome to those who are listening to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home. This is not just a one-way program. What I mean by that is we're not just here to talk to you. We are looking forward to you communicating back with us. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.33. And before we jump into our topic that we've been discussing for the last couple of weeks, Pastor, we have a couple of questions that have come in. The first one says, Good evening, Pastor Murphy and Brother Nathan. Me and my boyfriend live together. I had moved in because of the bad environment I was living in. We have been together for almost a year I want to get married, but he has a rule of waiting two more years. What are your thoughts, Pastor? Well, um, I've looked at the question fairly uh, exhaustively, and um, the things that I recognize is, number one, uh, I'm not too sure if these people are saved or not. Uh, I will approach it from two angles where I'm dealing with two people that are not saved and with the rare possibility that one of them might be saved in this kind of relationship. The thing that... um, I need to to point out is that um, whether this person is saved or not saved, uh, cohabitation is wrong, it is evil, it is sinful, and the fact that you are cohabitating and living together uh, indicates that you are engaging in sexual activity that is contrary to, to the scriptures. Um, you use the environment as a basis for you finding yourself in this kind of a situation. Uh, I would suggest to you that there might have been other alternatives rather than putting yourself in in a situation where you become trapped within a, a, a situation of cohabitation. Because once you get involved with a person sexually, sex takes over the relationship and it becomes a bondage. Uh, so you are in that situation currently. Um, you said you've been living together for one year. The fact that you've lived with this person for one year has... Uh, decrease the possibility that marriage will be for you in the future and it has increased the uh, possibility that your boyfriend uh, will have no sense of urgency in terms of getting uh, wanting to get married uh, why pay for the cake when you can enjoy the cake free and that is basically what is happening in this situation if a man enjoys the privilege of marriage without the cost of marriage, it's not likely that he's going to assume the responsibility to come uh, with that, 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 that relationship. Your boyfriend ruled that uh, two years experimental phase of cohabitation before he marries you is, in my judgment, silly. It is selfish. And quite frankly, I think it is basically self, a sex-oriented ploy 
to keep your hopes alive while enjoying his pleasure zone and you are in a difficult situation don't be surprised if after two years if you wait that long uh, that it becomes a probationary period as ad infinitum it keeps well next year and next year and next year um, you said you want to get married uh, whether you recognize it or not you have lessened the possibility that you're going to get married within two years and uh, could I say this um, marriage is very very simple all you need for marriage is two witnesses a pastor and you and your boyfriend that's all you require for marriage if you want to have a big splash sometime and you can't afford a big splash now uh, you get the big splash later when you become financially able to do it but to be living in a, in this kind of a situation uh, and using the excuse that the situation is difficult and the environment is difficult and now you find yourself uh, going on for a year I suspect that after two years it can go on for three years and four years don't be surprised if the Lord should tarry that you're in the same condition after five, six, seven years, and then you might very possibly end up where uh, the person will not marry you. That's a reality that you have to face as a person. In my judgment, you've made a poor choice, you've made a bad decision, and usually poor choice and bad decision end up with painful consequences. Um, so I am suggesting to you to get out of this, this uh, sex trap uh, if you are um, not saved, you need to repent, seek the Lord, seek forgiveness, and uh, turn your life over to Him and ask God to bring the right person into your life. Now, if you I want to deal with the other situation, because this always amazes me that I, I, uh, I'm surprised that any Christian could be in this situation. I'm just being very honest with you. I can't see how a person who's been changed and transformed and put their faith in Jesus Christ can be living in a cohabitation situation, habitually living with a person for such a long period of time. It's just beyond my thoughts and my possibility of thinking uh, because I know what change means in the Christian life. And the important thing in the Christian life is not pleasure. The important thing is pleasing God and trying to do God's will. Um, so I'm using the word very discreetly, profess to uh, one of you are a professed believer uh, in Christ. And um, uh, this would be, quite frankly, abnormal for a believer to be engaged in. Um, all sex outside of uh, a monogamous heterosexual marriage is evil and wrong and condemned by God. And uh, the Apostle Paul says in Thessalonians, let not fornication be even mentioned once among you. It doesn't belong within the church. So if you're claiming to be a, a, a true Christian, um, I am saying to you that you should not be in this situation. Now, if you are a Christian and the person is not a Christian, quite frankly, marriage should never take place, period. A believer should not marry an unbeliever. Paul says you only marry in the Lord. So you should not even entertain the idea uh, that you should marry this person if they're not a believer. If both of you profess to be Christians, my advice to you at this stage would be this. You need to separate. You need to seek premarital counseling. And you need to base your decision on the future relationship based on what comes out of that that, that counseling. Uh, what really matters to you as a professed believer 
is your testimony and witness before God. And if you happen to be a believer and the person is not a believer or to you profess to be believers, let me just say this. You have no testimony. You have no witness. And uh, I think it is laughable that you would tell anybody that you're Christian in that kind of a condition. So you need to face that. You should be concerned about doing God's will. And um, your legacy should always be to pass on a godly heritage to your offspring. And you can't do that in a situation where you are living in this kind of a um, uh, ungodly, um, unbiblical, unscriptural um, setting. So uh, my advice to you, either way, is that what you're doing is wrong. It's a wrong decision you've made. And I don't think it augurs well for your relationship in the future. Um, I think that you need to get out of this situation so you can make a better song to judgment in this matter. And by the way, if he, this guy really loves you, uh, he would never tell you, wait, two years. As I said, all you need is a pastor, two witnesses. That's it. That's what marriage is about. And then you work on other things later on, and then as you catch your hand and you really want to have some kind of a big marriage uh, then you can you know, sit you to afford that. But the important thing right now, if you are a believer, is to get yourself out of this ungodly situation and start to serve the Lord and rebuild your life and ask the Lord to bring the right partner into your life uh, to help you in this situation. If you would like more information about cohabitation and what the Bible says about it, one of the early episodes of this program was on the topic of cohabitation. You can go to radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large picture that you see. It's that of a microphone. And right in the center, you will see a circle that says podcast. Click on that and then go to the That's Truth podcast, the That's Truth podcast archive, and look for episode number three entitled Cohabitation. Pastor, you are referencing if you're not a believer. How does one become a believer? The biblical... Um teaching on becoming a believer is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. Those are two essentials for salvation. Nobody is saved who doesn't repent. I know a lot of people say believe, but if you don't repent, you don't have true biblical belief. And repentance is a complete change of mind and change of life. You're willing to leave. When you come under conviction of the Holy Spirit, whose job is to convict your sin, you need to turn away from that sin by confessing that sin to God and seeking God's forgiveness. That's called repentance. But repentance is not just confessing. Repentance is the resolve not to return to that kind of a behavior, that kind of a lifestyle. And uh, and the second thing, of course, is to put your faith and trust in Christ. And I like to say this, that you know, it's not how much faith you've got. It's the object of faith that really matters. Well, Pastor, do we have enough faith? Look, the Bible talks little faith, great faith, much faith, uh, great faith. But what it talks about that you need is faith. But that faith is what you put your faith in. It's not in your good life. It's not in the church. It's not in the past. It's not in the Pope. It's not in communion. It is simply putting your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, who died for our sins and took our place on the cross and make salvation available to us. That's the simple gospel in its basic essential form. How would you respond to the individual who says, Pastor, the way you talk about repentance makes it sound like it's a work on my part, something I have to do in order to earn salvation? Well, you have to do that. There's no, it's not about earnings. Repentance is not something you earn. For something is a requirement. Uh, so you must have repentance. You can't. Uh, how are you going to? When our Lord came on the scene, he had one message. Well, let me put it. When John the Baptist came on the scene, his message was, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. When our Lord came on the scene, the same message, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, he himself preached repentance. And uh, you cannot 
in any way. And the day of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching and 5,000 got saved, he said, repent and believe. Uh, see, repentance is an essential part. And repentance comes as a result of conviction. So even though you are, uh, you are told to do that and it's your responsibility, remember, you can't repent until you become convicted. You will never want to repent until you become convicted of your sin. It's only when you feel the weight of your sin and the guilt of your sin, then you turn and ask, what did I do? And then the Bible says, repent and put your faith and trust in Christ. So repentance is an essential, faith is an essential part of, of salvation as well. But again, as a result of your confession, your belief in the Word, uh, it's the Word that generates and causes you to put faith and trust in Christ. Uh, so it's not a work in the sense that you uh, you have to um, do anything per se. It's just a matter of you being obedient to God in terms of what He requires of you. Uh, you, know, you don't have to go to church to be saved. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. You don't have to do penance to be saved. You don't have to, you know, as, as people say, you know, um, do the, the sacraments to be saved. That's, that's work. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about God mandating for us that as a result of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, He brings you to the point where you are feel you feel guilty and sad and about your sin, you and then you repent of that, and you turn to Christ, recognizing that you can do nothing in yourself to save yourself, but just put your faith and trust in what he did for the cross. He died a vicarious death on our behalf so that our sins might be forgiven. Do you have a question? Maybe it's related to something that you've heard pastors say or something that just came to your mind that a co-worker asked you earlier today. We would love for you to call us and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text us your question, 268 782 1454. Our next question is in relation to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And I'll read those and then ask you the question. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Verse 11, lest Satan should get any advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And the question is, the Apostle Paul encourages us to forgive one another. What does verse 11 refer to when it says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices? And how does Satan get the advantage of us when we don't seek to forgive? What are his devices? Well, look, uh, the passage that you're dealing with, Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 to 11, has a reference to what Paul dealt with in First Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and verse number 5, where Paul is dealing with a young man in the Corinthian church who was living in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. He's sleeping with his mother, and uh, the church, rather than deal with the matter and discipline the young man and excommunicate him, put him outside the church if he didn't repent, the church was actually... Uh, proved to be so tolerant, they were actually boasting of how tolerant they were towards this kind of a young man. The Apostle Paul wrote then and told him, Look, I'm not even present with you. <laughs> I'm there with you in my spirit, but I'm not there in my physical prayer. But look, even in my absence, I am commanding you to put this young man out of the church, excommunicate him so that his body would be destroyed and his spirit saved in the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, sin of this nature must not be tolerated in the church. The church must not become a, a closet where people can do these kind of things and get away with them. There has to be some kind of dealing with these kind of matters. So, after to tell the apostle, apostle give the instruction, the church did exactly that. 
they put the young man into the church, they excommunicated him, and so on. But here's what happened. The young man genuinely repented. And now the church uh, is still holding this sin over the young man's head. Well, the young man has uh, repented, and uh, he wants to be restored to the church and be back in the church again. And the Corinthians are now holding out. They've gone from one extreme to the other. They were so tolerant, and Paul said, you know, this is wrong. You need to discipline. Now they become so harsh that the young man, having repented, uh, they don't even want to receive him back into the church. And the young man, of course, is uh, ex- exasperated. Uh, he has become disillusional. He's come to a point of despondency and despair. Where, what did he turn to? And this is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in that position. He's saying to them, look, you've got to forgive. Once there's repentance, you've got to forgive. And where there is repentance and your forgiveness, there has to be restoration. So the young man needs now to be restored back into fellowship with the church. And Paul is warning us that we can be so severe and so resentful over an individual who has done something that is absolutely wrong that we our repulsive harshness now creates a situation where the guy who is penitent goes into despair and might even commit suicide because he does no other place to turn to. And Paul is warning us that this is one of the great tricks of Satan, one of his schemes, that we can adopt an unforgiving spirit within the church that leads to disillusionment, that leads to the young man reaching despair and giving up all hope. And of course, we don't know where that leads. He turns to drinking, he turns to drugs, he turns to sex, he does something else. And Paul is saying, this is a trick of the devil and you need to be aware that this is one of his strategies. Pastor, we have a caller with a question. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Um, good evening, Pastor Mark. Good evening, um, Nathan. Good evening, sir. So, Pastor. Yes, sir. I want to uh, ask uh, several questions, but before I do, I want to make sure that I heard you right. Yes, go ahead. You said said that sometime, sometime back, that during the thousand years we are going to have activity here on Earth. Yeah. Okay. Now, Nathan, could you do some reading for me because um, my sight is not so good now. Yeah. I have to go get it checked out. What passage? Two, two Thessalonians two eight. Okay, Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse eight. Yes. Says, and then shall that wicked be revealed. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. No, Pastor. Yes, sir. At Christ's second coming, uh-huh. he destroyed every single wicked person. The only person um, that are going to be saved from the brightness of his coming is um, the redeemed uh-huh. and Satan's angels. In Revelation 21, 4, uh, Nathan, could you read that? Revelation 21, verse 4? Tre- no, not 21, 20. 20. 21 to 4. 21 to 4. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were 
beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. No, Pastor, mm-hmm. when Christ returns, as I said, well, the Bible says it, mm-hmm. he smites the wicked by the brightness of his coming, takes up all the redeemed, and the, um, Satan cannot tempt anybody, because he has nobody to tempt. They're all dead. Mm-hmm. And he's left for a thousand years mm-hmm. to um, prevent, um, to, sorry, to um, think about all the evil he has done in the world. Mm-hmm. After a thousand years is, is um, over, it's finished, then he's going to be um, given a chance to take up his evil work once again. Right. Now, how can there be anybody on the, on this earth when all uh, all the redeemed goes up to heaven hmm. and it's only Satan left here on earth? Well, look, I don't know where you're coming from, but I understand the general frame of thought. But again, there is the rapture of the church and there's the revelation. There are two different uh, comings that are involved. The, it, when it comes to the church, the church is going to be raptured before the revelation where he comes back at, during the tribulation period, at the end of the tribulation period, and, and brings everything to a halt. So I, I hope we got that, that clear in our minds that this one in Thessalonians has nothing to do with the rapture. The one with the rapture has to do with the snatching away of the church. The church will be snatched up and taken up. That's why the word is used in the, in the Greek language. So we will be taken up. Who we are alive and remain will be taken up, and those who are dead will be raised. That is the rapture. Okay? Then after the rapture, you have a seven-year tribulation period where God plummets this earth, and he comes back at the end of the tribulation period to deal with the final uh, rebellion, and he destroys uh, the wicked. Okay? That, but again, as a, as a result of that now, you're going to have what is called the millennial kingdom, a thousand year of peace and rule, because the Bible has promised throughout the Old Testament that Christ will sit on the throne of David and he will rule from Jerusalem. That's a promise that was given in the Old Testament. It's a promise given when he was born in Luke chapter 2 that he will sit on the throne of David and rule. That has never happened. It will happen because God doesn't make a promise he can't fulfill. So what happens is that all true believers go into the Millennial Kingdom. But if you also read Matthew chapter 25, uh, we can't go there, but you can read it. The nations during the tribulation period will judge according to their treatment of Israel. How they treat Israel, the nation of Israel, because Israel is going to be target of the tribulation period. God is not finished with the nation Israel, and people don't understand that. Uh, somebody gave me a passage the other day, I think uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 62, I think it was, where God said, just that the new heaven and new earth will last forever, even so your name and your pe- people Israel will never disappear. God has a plan. So when the church is raptured, God now grafts Israel back into his plan. You find that in Romans chapter 11. They'll now be grafted back into his plan. So the nations that, that uh, how they treat Israel during the tribulation, because God is, God is purifying Israel during the tribulation period. That's what it's all about. He cannot lead them into the land of blessing and promise that he did until they're purified. The way they can be purified is to go through what is called the time of Jacob's trouble. The Bible says there has never been, nor will there ever be a time like that on planet Earth. where God will, By the time God is finished with all of this thing, one-third of the world's population remains. Two-thirds are gone. But the nations that responded to Israel, according to Matthew chapter 25, he judges those nations according to their treatment because that's 
how they demonstrate their faith in God during the tribulation period. They begin to understand that the target of Satan is to destroy the nation, Israel. That has always been the end because the Messiah comes through Israel. God's plan is complete through the nation of Israel. And his whole target is to destroy Israel. But the nations that understand that and respond in protecting the their go into the into the millennial kingdom as well. Read it very carefully. The the sheep and the goat are separated. Nations are separated. So they go into, these are believing nations now, or people who trust. And they go into the tribulation period. And they're there for a thousand years. But they still have their sinful nature. They're not they're not they're not uh glorified like the saints are glorified. So they have still have the, the coming by faith and during that time God Christ rules with a, a a rod of iron, the Bible says. That's why the Bible uses that expression. He rules with a rod of iron. But during that thousand years, a man would live for a hundred years and it's like it's nothing. Uh, Isaiah says that. So it'll be a longevity once again, but during that time as well, it's not just Satan that tempts us. It's our sinful nature that we have that will never be eradicated or removed until we are transformed and changed when our Lord returns. So those people now go through as righteous people because they've been by faith. But in the process of a thousand years, the sin nature begins to act up. And they now become where, uh, that's why Christ has to rule with a rod of iron and keep them under control. But there's still people born during the tribulation period for a thousand years that are not saved because these saved people produce unsaved children like we do today. And that's why when Satan is released now, he's able now to deceive some of these same very people because they don't have faith and trust. That is the biblical teaching on the matter. So there's no, there's no um, contradiction there. It's just if we understand the difference between the rapture and the revelation and what plan God has for Israel and why Christ must sit on the throne of David and reign from Jerusalem, that's a, a truth that is taught in the Old Testament again and again. When God makes a promise, He doesn't make a promise and He can't fulfill that promise. He might suspend the promise because of the evil of people, but whatever promise God makes, it must be and will be fulfilled because God looks at all contingencies and He knows exactly what needs to be done and He works it out according to His eternal plan. But again, the biggest problem God has is not working with the material universe. The material universe responds to God. God just says, do it, and it does it. The problem man God has is with man. He's operating in man on the basis of free will, a moral being, and that's the problem. That's why it is so. It is not as easy to say that God can just do this because he can't at the same time violate human will. If he does that, he now makes us robots. And that was never his plan. So he works within the confines of man's responsibility and man's being a moral creature. And that's what makes sometimes, for example, the Lord told uh, Jonah, go and preach to Nineveh. And 40, years are going, 40 days are going to be destroyed. That was God's initial plan. I will destroy Nineveh in 40, year, 40 days. But what happens? He preaches and they repent. And God suspends it for another 200 years, but he still judges them afterwards. Same thing with Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk is confused. God, how can you use the Babylonians to come and destroy people Israel? The Babylonians are such a wicked nation. And he, he's finding difficulty. And that's why the Lord said that Joshua shall live by faith. You don't understand all that my plan is, but trust me, I know what I'm doing. And uh, the Lord eventually told Habakkuk, listen, what my plan is, Israel has sinned. They've gone into idolatry. I'm going to bring these pagans 
to punish Israel, but then I'm going to turn around and punish the Babylonians. See, that's why he couldn't understand how could God use an unrighteous nation to punish a righteous nation. But that that righteous nation had gone into idolatry and sin, and God is a moral being who has to deal with sin even among His people. And uh, but that is the complex. So I'm just saying to you that once you understand the rapture and the revelation and what the rapture and the revelation is all about. The Bible then fits in like a puzzle, and it becomes very clear now how this can work. And that's what that's why you know, look, Bible prophecy has only in the last hundred years become the focus of study. If you read the old commentaries, uh, Matthew Henry and other commentaries, you'll find that they 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 never really understood Bible prophecy because it is only the time uh, developed and the historical information became you can now understand prophecy better because we've had 2,000 years of history. But those people could not see what was happening, so they, they, they allegorized the Bible. They didn't want it to be literal because they couldn't see how it could be literal. See, If I might use one other, if I might just one other modern example very quickly. I know you Look, the Bible says that when the two prophets are killed in the book of Revelation, God will raise up in the end. The Bible said the whole world will see their body rise up from the dead. How could that ever have happened until we had tele- telecommunications? And, 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 and uh, It was impossible. Those people couldn't understand how could that happen. So they interpreted the Bible according to the limited knowledge. And that's why they had to allegorize. This cannot be real. This cannot be true. Because how can, a man, how can the world see uh, people rise from the dead, actually who've been dead for three and four days? But we today, we laugh at the fact that they were so confused because... I can, you can sit today in your room and see what's going on in Israel. You can see what's going on in America because we've got telecommunications. And that was a problem with the, the distortions of interpretation because uh, the historical period had not developed where we can understand these things. And people were trying to understand them f- within their own local setting. And that led to a lot of false interpretation. But now we've got the, the, uh, a lot of Bible prophecy has been done. Men have devoted their lives to study Bible prophecy. It has become very clear, more the outline. We don't know all the uh, every unique detail, but we have a broad outline of how God, how this thing meshes in, and how God works. I don't know if that helps. I hope it hasn't confused you. Yes, sir. Pastor. Yes, sir. I. We are from different de- denominations, and yeah. um, you're going to have differences of opinion. But, right, um, right. I. I don't like hear. I don't like to hear somebody I think is going wrong, going wrong, especially a good man. I've heard you make um, studies about uh, um, snippets about your, your early life. I said to myself, "There's a good man, but he just has um, things wrong." Uh-huh. Anyhow, could um, I ask you a question? Could you be wrong as well? I could be wrong. Yeah. Again, they don't. They only, there's only one solution. We go to the scripture and see right, exactly that's what that's the scripture teaches. That's that's the, that's the, the issue. Let's go to the scripture now. Uh-huh. Nathan, could you do some more for me? Read Daniel two forty four. Daniel chapter two, and let me scroll down to verse number forty four. Yes, Daniel 2, 4 to 4. And in the days these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. First, 
Um, okay, read Micah 4 1 and Isaiah 2 2. Micah 4 1, 1 and 2, and Isaiah 2 2. They both speak the same thing, but read both of them. Micah 4 1 and 2 says, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow onto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. What's the other passage? That's it? Isaiah 2-2. Two, two. Isaiah 2-2. Two, two. All right. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow onto it. Yeah. But I don't have a problem with what you said there, you know. That's not a problem. That, 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 fi- that fits us. Pastor, hold on. Let me just yeah. get to, to other passages. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Isaiah 11, 6, 9. 6 through 9? Yeah. Isaiah. 11, 6 to 9. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Verse 7, And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No, last, last passage. Zechariah 8, 3 to 8. Zechariah 3. 8. Thank you. All right, Zechariah 8, starting in verse 3, says, Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts of the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the city, in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, And I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. You want me to respond to that? No, no, just now. Let me just make my point, and then you can respond. Sure, sure. Daniel 2.44 says, In the days of these kings, which kings he's speaking of, the kingdoms that that were established during the um, the, the, um, two kingdoms. Hmm. All these passages that Nathan read is speaking to the establishment of his kingdom. 
It, it, it happens when Antigua, as it exists today, as America as it exists today, Barbados as it ex, 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 exists today, Bulgaria as it exists today, Canada as it exists today, Chile as it exists today, Dominica as it exists today, Denmark as it exists today, Egypt as it exists today, Ethiopia as it exists So. No, I, 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 d let me show you where you're wrong right immediately, okay? If you read the same passage you gave me in the book of Daniel, Daniel 4, was it? 4, uh, 4, 4, 4, yeah. If you read the passage before, you see what kings they're talking about, okay? It's the 10 kings that were going to be reigned in the last days, what is called the, the revived Roman Empire. Daniel tells you very clearly who those kings are coming out. They're coming out of the fourth, uh, there are four kingdoms that were coming, the, the, the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, and then the Roman kingdom. And there are 10 toes that are supposed to come, and 10 horns. That is where the Roman Empire is going to be revived. That's what the Bible talks about. That 10th nation, in the time of those nations, that has not been formed as yet. The beginning of the uh, what they call the European Economic uh, Community, that is the fledgling beginning of this revival of the Roman Empire. And look at what's happening, by the way. It, Europe now uh, is being forced to defend itself. The, the, for the first time, Germany is now waking up to the reality that they got a bear called Russia. And now uh, the reluctance is this. Look at what will happen as a result of this war in Romania. You're going to see that it's going to force these European nations to come together to defend themselves. This will be the beginning of the what the Bible has talked about, the ten-nation confederacy in the end time that will be raised up out of the old Roman Empire that is going to, in the time of those nations, is when the kingdom is going to be destroyed. So we, this, is, you, this is something completely different. You're using the word nations there. No, read the context. See what nation they're talking about before and that's the danger of people who read the Bible take a passage of scripture don't read what comes before and what comes after they don't look at the context they just take words that is how misinterpretation develops and that's why people get become skewed in their interpretation and that idea that you're saying because it's in these nations read who the nations are it tells you exactly who those nations are in that same passage and then go to Daniel chapter 7 and you see the same nations are mentioned again the, the 10 nations and then go to Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 and you'll find again the ten nations are mentioned again the ten toes etc etc so that's what he's talking about not Antigua and St. Vincent and, 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 and so on and so forth that, and let me just suggest to you something here's the problem that most people have that, are dis that have distortions when it comes to Bible prophecy they do not have a place for the nation of Israel hmm. they don't have it the Catholics don't have it the Adventists don't have it the Reformed Church don't have it they don't believe there's any role for Israel. All, the, all that was done, Israel, because they rejected the Messiah, God has put, done away with them and taken every promise he's made to Israel in the Old Testament and put it to the church. That's not true. God will fulfill every promise he made to Israel because he's the yea and amen. He doesn't make a promise he can't fulfill. He suspends the fulfillment of that promise because of human sin and human behavior. But it still will be fulfilled. So I'm saying to you that using that in, in, in um, Daniel chapter 4, this is not what, no, read who the nations are before. Uh, and that's why you should read what comes before, before you just take one verse and use it in that sense. And by the way, everything you've said confirms what, what I believe. Everything you've said. That's where the millennial kingdom comes in. And Christ will reign from Jerusalem. But that's not the eternal kingdom. 
That's a thousand-year rule. The eternal kingdom then, after the millennial kingdom and the final rebellion, then God enters the eternal kingdom, the new Jerusalem comes down for heaven, new heaven and new earth. That's where, so everything you've said have really supported everything I believe. I don't doubt anything you've said. The, the passage in Isaiah uh, 11, the lion lying down with the lamb, Exactly what will happen during the thousand-year millennial rule when Christ rules. The Edenic paradise will once be restored to what it used to be. The curse will be removed for that thousand years, uh, for that period of time. And that's why a man who lives a hundred years, he'll be like a little boy, because there'll be a restitution of longevity again, because the curse is removed. All of that is promised in the Bible. But that is the millennial kingdom. That's not the eternal kingdom, which comes after the millennial kingdom. So I don't see how anything you've said here disprove anything that we believe. It's just that I think the problem that you may have is that you, you're not thinking of a literal Israel. You're thinking that the, the, uh, the, uh, or you're not thinking of a literal Jerusalem. You're thinking of maybe the, the heavenly Jerusalem that's supposed to come down. But that's, the, that's where the error starts. And that's why when it comes to Bible prophecy, there is so much confusion in the matter because people do not understand there are three major groups in this world. There is the Gentiles, there is a Jew, and there's a church. Paul makes that distinction. And God has grafted in the church as a result of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. But read again Romans 9, 10, and 11. You see, Paul tells you clearly what God's plan is for Israel. Chapter 9 tells you about Israel's past, all the blessings. Chapter 10 tells you about Israel now being um, in blindness because of their unbelief in the Messiah. Chapter 11 says, don't boast Gentiles because God is going to graft his people back into his plan again. And that's when the church is raptured. Now he, he grafts Israel back into his plan. And, uh, and, and, and that's what this whole, that's how you understand the tribulation. That's how you understand the millennium. And that's why people, are, but if righteous people are going through, how come at the end Satan can deceive them? Because people have to understand it's the millennial kingdom is talking about, not the eternal kingdom. So I, I, I wish we could talk a little bit more, maybe face-to-face and, and go to Scripture with Scripture. But I think that um, I don't disagree with any... All the Scriptures you use is exactly what I use to prove my point. So in my judgment, you've helped support what the Bible teaches on these matters. So I don't see any disparity between what you, what you, what these passages say and what uh, we believe in terms of Bible prophecy. Thank you for your call. We appreciate your interaction. And maybe you've been listening to this and you have your interest peaked, especially with the war that is seems to be brewing in Ukraine and Russia. And you say, you know what, I'd like to know more information about what the Bible says, because, again, that's what matters is what the Bible says about end times. Well, Pastor did a whole series, looks like almost 20 episodes on Bible prophecy. Again, you can go to our website, radiolighthouse.org, scroll down until you see a link for podcast, and then go to the That's Truth podcast link. And look for episode number 89 through 91. Those are the passages in relation to Daniel that were referenced tonight. But then going all the way down to episode number, oh, it looks like episode number 106 is the last one on Bible prophecy. And no matter what topic you may be interested in, it is very likely that there is an episode that is titled along those lines. You can go to that same archive. You can do like a word search on the page by hitting control F and you can search for whatever. We have episodes, Pastor has done episodes on demonology, on uh, rejection, how to deal with anxiety, 
Uh, and we are presently doing a series on child abuse, specifically sexual abuse of minors. If you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to one two six eight seven eight two. 1454. If you'd like to speak live on the air, the phone line is open and available, and you can call 1 268 462 7420. Our next question is in relation to 1 Corinthians. We we haven't finished the the topic we're talking about, 2 Corinthians. (laughs) I was explaining to the person that what Paul means here by the satanic, we're not in certain devices, is the, we're dealing here with the matter of an unforgiving spirit that creates such grief and despair in the person who's repentant that he is destroyed as a result of the um, the inability of the church to forgive a person who's truly repentant. That's what Paul says. It's a trap of Satan. We are practicing religious toughness, and we don't understand that it is true that we've got to deal with sin. We might have to excommunicate people and put them out of the church, but it's always with a view to restoration. And once the person repents, uh, we restore them to fullness. And Paul is saying to the church that. And then the person asks, well, what's some of his devices? Look, uh, we know from Scripture that uh, Satan uses deceit. Um, Revelations 12, 9, Nathan, and Revelations twenty ten. Revelation 12.9 says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. And 20 verse 10. Revelation 20 and verse 10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. No, the devil that deceived them, he is a, one of his tricks is deception. Don't ever forget that. And I mentioned in Matthew chapter 24 when the Lord talks about what to look for in the end times. He mentions several signs you look for, but the emphasis in Matthew chapter 24, he uses it four times, is the whole idea of deceit and deception. That would be the master stroke of genius of Satan during the end times. Deceit deceit in religion. The things are happening in religion today that I, I, I myself can't even believe that men who are supposed to be really, uh, supposed to be evangelical leaders are now fallen. There's something called Chrislam. Where they're trying to bring, not <laughs> trying to bring Christ and Islam together, saying there's no essential difference between them. And you know who's involved in that? Rick, Rick Warren is one of those people. Wow. Who would ever think that? Tony Campolo. When I began to, to see the quotes of these guys, these people are falling. And the Bible warns about the apostasy that's coming in the end time. I really believe that we're in that period of time. But deception is, an, you know, uh, look at Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 to 15, another of his ploys, another of his uh, schemes. Uh, Pastor, we have a call. I'll get to that passage in just a minute. Okay, caller. Thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Good evening. Good Uh, good evening, sir. Nathan and Pastor Murphy. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, I've been listening to the um, the program, and I'm really a constant listener, but, you know, for a while I had not called in. Okay. Now, I have just um, heard... um, the amount of scriptures read not long ago by a previous caller. Yes, sir. And, you know, listen to your comment. And I want to just let you know that everything that you have said, I am in agreement with you. I just called to support you because what you said, um, that people, the way that some people view the scripture, they, they just read one passage and then make a comment. They need to understand what the Bible is actually saying. And you just can't read one scripture verse, not reading what um, was before that and what went um, is after that. Correct. That 
have to read the context and then look at what the scripture is actually saying. Yeah. And so, you know, I am very much, um, you know, appreciate what you are doing because what you are doing is, is, is the very same thing that I teach. Amen. And so I just call to support you, okay. um, let you know that, well, look, you know, keep, keep up the good work. Keep teaching people. You know, the medium that you have, use it to educate and to enlighten people based on what the Scripture is actually saying. Okay. And people do not understand that you just can't take Scriptures out of context. You've got to understand what the Scripture is actually saying. And when it comes to Bible prophecy, a lot of people just don't, they don't understand Bible prophecy, and they just speak as random and think that, well, you know, um, if what they say go because based on their knowledge. Yeah. We need the Holy Spirit to help us to understand what the Scripture is saying, and we just can't take the Scriptures out of context. I appreciate that so much, sir. I really do. Thank you so very much. So Pastor Murphy, you just keep up the good work, and um, you have people like me uh, supporting you. Um, I, I, I understand the Scripture. I know what the Scripture is saying. Yeah. And when there is a, a wrong, and you err, because all of us are, are human beings, we err sometimes yeah. to not understand certain things. Um, I would not really, um, you know, come down on you because I know that you will find a way if you earn, you will come to the public and let the public know exactly. Okay. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate that. God bless you. Yes. Thank you very much for the call. Thanks for the encouraging words. And I appreciate you listening and continue to encourage others to listen to the Radio Lighthouse also. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 821. Uh, Pastor, what was the passage you wanted me to? Yeah, look at? we're talking about the person. At what are his devices and and, and uh, schemes that he used? We use the word deception, deceit, and then the other one is Second uh, Corinthians chapter eleven, verse fourteen to fifteen. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen to fifteen says, "And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore." It is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Just want to point out something here. You know, a lot of the false cults have uh, originated because an angel appeared. Yeah. You you read it again and again. The angel told me this, and this is the Bible's experience. A lot of the false religions that have developed, they may claim to some kind of supernatural um, visit. From angelic, and the Bible is explaining that the, the devil himself can transform himself on the angel of light, and uh, so a lot of people are deceived by uh, this satanic camouflage. But notice as well, he tumbled false ministers. That unless we let's understand this, not every man in the pulpit is a genuine, authentic preacher. We got to understand that the pulpit sometimes is filled with people who are false ministers. They're not genuine, authentic ministers. So, and, and, and it's a delusion for us to think that every person in the pulpit, look, there are people in the pulpit who don't believe in, in creation. Hmm. They don't tell the public that. They talk about, um, you know, um, talk in terms of maybe use the, word, the language creation, but they don't mean creation by the fiat of God. Uh, they're referring to creation through the process of evolution, but they don't tell the people that. And you believe it or not, a lot of the established churches, uh, the ministers, do not. Do you know that even the Catholic Church believes in evolution? I don't know if you know that. No. The Pope endorses evolution, yeah. So when you talk about uh, these matters, and again, in my judgment, uh, well, not just my judgment, creation is by a fiat of God that God created uh, this world out of nothing. 
ex nihilo. That you gotta believe that. If you don't believe in the first miracle, you can't believe in any other miracle after that. So that is why if you believe that God really created by God spoke this world into existence and that by his power he did that, you don't have a problem with any other miracle in the Bible. You doubt creation and that he used a process of evolution, you always have problems with, with miracles, and that's where all the modernism and the liberalism came in into Christianity. These are fake people who have no faith in God, no faith in the Bible, but they are engaged in activity to help, and I don't know how they can help people if they don't believe in the God that creates. Um, that's beside the point. But notice there are false ministers. The other one is uh, Ephesians 4, 7, uh, 4, 14. It's another example of these schemes or these devices of Satan, what he uses. Ephesians 4.14? Yeah. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by yeah. the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The idea of false doctrine. There are people who deceive people and uh, satanic ministers who are in the pulpit that should not be there. They teach false doctrine and they mislead the people. And Paul is warning. That's another scheme that he used. Look at uh, John eight forty four. Let's see, John eight forty four and verse 44 says... Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was he was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of another him. scheme. His lying schemes that he has to deceive people with lies. He told um, uh, Eve. Uh, thou shalt not surely die. God said to Eve, the day you eat, you will die. No question about that. But then he uses uh, uses the same language, uh, couches it in something more extreme, and uh, misleads her uh, by, by, by lying to her. And that's where it started, and that the lie has continued throughout all generations until presently. Today we're in a situation where we don't know who to trust. We can't trust government anymore because, especially with COVID, we're now learning, by the way, that there's now been a download of um, people have been sued. The CDC has been sued for the information about what they knew about the side effects, which was saying it will take them, uh, I think, two or three years that somebody was... And now the, the information has come out. I saw the list the other day. My son showed it to me. Daddy, you wouldn't believe it. When I saw the list, I almost fainted. If I had known that these were the side effects, I would have had second thoughts and third thoughts. But again, they only gave it out because there was legal sanctions if they didn't do it. But why didn't tell the people before, right? So you've got deception. You don't know who to believe these days, and that runs. And But the father of lies is Satan. That's one of the schemes. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling. And go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, good evening. Hi, good evening, sir. How are you doing, Mr. Williams? Not well on you, good, yeah, good, good, night. good night. What can we do for you? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I, I, this question is root. Uh, when root, uh, the one root parents were sacrificing her body to to commerce, and then she had the the birth mark on her hand. Was that of God or or that of a miracle? I don't know what you're talking about. Who? What happened? You said you're saying root. Okay, you, 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 you remember one root? 
in the Bible. What's that? Ruth? Ruth in the Bible, uh-huh. Yes. And she went she was told to sacrifice her to for the false god. Remember they remember they used to <coughs> they used to worship false god. Kemosh died to kill little children and what and one day. Uh-huh. And when they come to sacrifice you, she had a birthmark. And no, no, that's not that's not in the Bible, brother. That you might get it from Moses, maybe some other book, maybe the book of Enoch or something. But that's not in the Bible. There's no mention in the Bible of any roof making a sacrifice and any birthmark. So that's okay. not there. It's not there. Okay, and then and then okay, when Naomi had decided to go back to Bethlehem, uh-huh. and she wanted Ruth to go back to her uh-huh. to her homeland, uh-huh. was it the right thing Naomi are doing or? Was it wrong? But it's clearly it worked out right because you remember that Naomi, uh, Ruth said, your God will be my God and your people be my people. But remember that as a result of Ruth going back there, she married Boaz. As a result of marrying Boaz, Jesse was born, who was the son of, who became, gave us David the king and out of David the king came the Messiah. So clearly it was a wise decision for her to go back uh, with Ruth. But remember that Ruth is a Moabite. Okay? And uh, so she is, she is not coming through the stock of Abraham, quite frankly, but she becomes, if you read uh, Matthew chapter 1 and I think Luke chapter 2, you find that she is in the lineage of David, Ruth. There are about four women in the lineage of Christ that uh, shows the, the enormous grace of God in taking, for example, um, you've got Tamar, you've also got um, Rahab. The harlot, she's part of the lineage of Christ as well. And Ruth the Moabite, who should not be, I think, the third or fourth generation allowed back into Israel, yet because of her decision to go back home with Naomi, she's brought into the lineage of David, uh, who becomes the forefather, as it were, of the Messiah. So it was a right decision for Naomi to encourage her to go back. And remember that Oprah decided she wasn't going back, so she disappears from history. But Ruth, who acted in faith and went back with Naomi, uh, she would eventually make Boaz, and she would become he would become what is called the kinsman redeemer, which is a type of Christ in the Bible. So it was a clearly a right decision uh, to bring her back to, to Jerusalem. And uh, without that, we would not have had Jesse. We would not have had David either. So I think so, it's a right. So you believe that was the plan of God all, all, all the way through? Well, it, you know, the book of Ruth is an interesting book. Uh, it just shows you the how people who remember that, and, and I don't have time to deal with this right now. But Jerusalem is the, is, is 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 the house of bread. That's what the word Jerusalem means. There's a lot of symbolism as, as well in that. And as a result of losing um, her husband and then losing her her, her children, her, her sons, etc., she's in bitterness, quite frankly. And it just shows the people leaving. Uh, the place where God has put them and they're encountering difficulty they go out to find greener pasture and then they're chastened by God and they have to go back home so clearly God was uh, working in, in uh, Naomi's life uh, because God could foresee you know he knows the future he could see that David had to be born Jesse had to be born and he would come out of uh, uh, Ruth marrying Boaz so quite frankly behind the scenes it just shows you that sometimes we make mistakes we get hard times and we try to go out to green pastures and when we end up in green pastures it becomes more deleterious to us and we, we, we suffer pain and then God has to bring us back it's like uh, Abraham having to go back to Bethel 
you know, back to Bethel. There's a sermon I preach on it, back to Bethel. Difficult times, you run away, and then God brings you back to Bethel. That's where he offered the altar. And I think in the case of Naomi and uh, Ruth and Oprah and those other people, uh, clearly God was, was working in their lives and bringing her back home uh, so that the Messiah eventually be born to, to Jesse, who was the father of David, who came through Boaz. Okay, Pastor, and one, one last thing. Yes, sir. Uh, hello? I'm missing, sir. Yeah, uh, I had written some to some guys a couple of weeks ago, and I ended up telling them that if one did what tell the, the lady, she did not go to take the children bread and and fed for dogs. Uh-huh. And she said, even the dogs eat of the masters. Right. Uh-huh. And the man get irritated. This man, the man say, "How can you call me? How can you call me dog? I am not a dog." Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So yeah, well, again, <laughs> today we get we we are so sensitive today, uh, and I think that our history has a lot to do with our sensitivity. To be very honest with you, and I think that people feel the language that was used against that woman. She's a Gentile, and the point is this: she has to understand that salvation is of the Jews. It was coming to the Jewish nation. And uh, she was a Canaanite woman, if I recall the story. So she is a person who is under curse. And uh, the question is, are you going to humble yourself to accept a Jewish Messiah? Because Christ is a Jewish Messiah. He's yeah. a Jewish Messiah. So he uses that kind of language to see if her pride would block her, or would she be humble enough to accept the fact. And by the way, before God, we are worse than dogs. I mean, quite frankly, I'm a worse than a dog before I was, a, before I was saved. I was a pagan. And I was an evil person, and know that what or title he called me. Quite frankly, um, I, I and I and I was not worthy of anything but death. I have to humble myself to understand that Christ is not just a man speaking to her. Christ is God in the flesh. He's and he has a right to tell us who we are. Read Isaiah chapter one. You see how he describes Israel from the head to the toe. There's no 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 health in it whatsoever, and he talks about corruption and evil, etc. So. She had to humble herself and accept uh, uh, his assessment of her. And thankfully, the woman um, didn't give up and she was able to use her wit. Well, Lord, even the dogs under the table. And the Lord said, quite frankly, I've never met a woman like this in my whole life. Uh, she has more faith than even the Jews had. So her persistence, uh, he drew out faith out of her and she was able to put her, tr- her trust in him. And that's what the thing was. Uh, but we got to be careful ourselves that we are not, we are not Christ. <laughs> we are not God in the flesh. So I think we got to be very careful how the language we use when we're dealing with people. And uh, to um, another part, he says, don't throw your, your, your pearls before swines. Yeah. Uh, again, we got to be very, very careful when we're dealing with people that we don't use that kind of language. Uh, you know, because we don't want to insult people that they are so defensive, they're not willing to listen to us. But we should point out, it might read the story and explain to him that he had that right to do it because he was God in the flesh. But we need to be very, very judicious not to be unnecessarily offensive in dealing with people to cause them to uh, withdraw themselves for ourselves or maybe not prepared to listen to us, to close off themselves to us because the language that we use. We've got to be kind and thoughtful in dealing with people and uh, there's nothing wrong in preaching on that uh, wor- wor- words that are there or even reading it to somebody and explaining. But we ourselves uh, have got to be very careful how we use language, especially when we're evangelizing and trying to influence people. We want to love people, but at the same time, uh, we don't want to deceive them into believing that they're okay. 
and we need to point out that they're sinners. And maybe what we can deal with is the kind of sins that are today when we're dealing with them. Uh, point that out to them, these are sins, etc. But be watchful uh, even in dealing with these unsafe people. Yes, we, they turn away from us because we, we're using language that uh, our Lord had the right to use, but we are not in the position to use because we ourselves were dogs and swines as well before, uh, spiritual that is, before we were saved. Okay, then. Say hi to the wife, please. God bless you. Yeah, you do. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. you very much for the call, Brother Williams. We appreciate it. Have a safe night and continue to encourage others to listen to the Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. For this program, you can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and right there on your device, whether your device is big or small, you can, right in the comments section, you can send a question or a suggested topic to Pastor Murphy, and I will read it to him live on air in a timely manner. If you have a question that you'd like answered, you can WhatsApp or text it to 1-268-782-1454. Again, WhatsApp or text is 268-782-1454. And if you'd like to be put live on the air, the phone line is open and available. And you can call the number 268-462-7420. Yeah, um, well, we talked about these devices because the person what a device. We talk about despair because of an unforgiving attitude of members when a person repents. We talk about deceit. We talk about false ministers and appearing as an angel of light. We talk about false doctrine and lies. Let me mention two others quickly. Look at John, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5 says, Defraud ye not one of the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinence. Incontinency. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, less Satan. Read it again. Less Satan. Defraud ye not one the other. Verse 5. Except it be with consent for a time. Uh, that Satan tempt you right not again for your again there's another strategy and notice what uh, Paul is dealing with there in Corinthians chapter 7 he's talking about the obligations between a husband and a wife within the marital context and Paul is saying that in if one of the partners are withholding themselves sexually to meet the needs of the other partner it creates the opportunity where Satan can tempt the partner who is deprived of that to go and seek fulfillment outside the marriage. And Paul said, don't be so stupid. This is one of his tricks. See, a wife and a husband are obligated to meet each other's needs. The wife body doesn't belong to herself. The husband body doesn't belong to himself. There must be a mutual. And Paul said the only reason why a couple should disengage in sexual activity when there's a need is if there's a time of prayer. See, listen, uh, and he's warning that within the home, the environment can be created by, because of um, starving the other person sexually, that that partner uh, is, is, is almost Satan tempting to go outside the marriage or she to go outside the marriage to do that. So that's another trick of Satan, using uh, martial, um starving people uh, within the marriage sexually and uh, allowing Satan to use that as a means of getting the other partner to, to go and commit sin with somebody else. Let me give you another one very quickly. Acts three, Acts 5.3 and then John 13.2. Acts 
Acts 5, 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? And then John 13, 2. John 13, 2 says, And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now remember that the biblical symbol heart has to do with the mind, okay? And what he's talking about here is that both in the case of Ananias and Judas, Satan injected the thought into their mind, listen, uh, you, we are going to pretend that we are generous, and we're going to claim that we sold the land and gave everything to the church, but we're going to hold back some. And Peter explained that that thought was injected into the mind and in the case of Judas, same thing happened, betrayed the master. And that's one thing we need to understand. Satan can put evil ideas in our minds that cause us to do things that we would not do if we are guided by biblical truth. And that's why when you have an idea or a thought, don't assume it comes from God. Right? Measure that thought by the standard of Scripture. Is this thing biblically right? That's why I say to you that if we get away from Scripture, as the world has done and the church is doing now, we are going to be deceived again and again. And that's why there's so much false teaching that's into the church uh, today. Uh, it's because the church has gone away from Scripture, gone away from truth. The, the world has gone away from truth. And, uh, and the only ones that are going to be salvaged, what is called the remnant church, are those who hold to the biblical truth so that they themselves are not deceived. Now, there are others as well. We had a case of David where David numbered the people. And his Bible said that Satan moved David to number the people. He injected the thought in David. David, uh, rather than depend upon God, he started now to put depend upon the army, how much soldiers he's got. And that thought did not come from God because all these years David was trusting God to help him and to protect him. Now David comes to the point where he feels that he needs to number the army to find out how big his army is. And even Joab, who is not one of those sterling characters, said, listen, you shouldn't do this. But David didn't listen. As a result of that, he incurred the wrath of God. He was given three choices. But again, notice, he has the capacity to inject thoughts, push thoughts in your mind. And uh, and that's something you need to be aware of. You ever was praying yet and had one of the most evil thoughts? Here you are in the most sacred time in your life, and this thought comes from nowhere, bam, in your mind. Where do you think it came from? It could come from within, but not necessarily from within. You've got an enemy that knows your history. And he can always inject thoughts into your mind. That is the reality that we need to, be, to live with. So those are just eight, uh, seven of his devices. And there are others as well that we could talk about. Persecution is another one to, to move people away from the Lord and cause them to renounce uh, their faith, etc., etc. But he's, his strategies are multifaceted. And the Bible is saying, and you know what the Bible says? We're not ignorant of those devices because we should look in Scripture and see how these people have been trapped and misled and understand that behind the scenes there is a satanic power leading people astray. So we, we were given the Bible so that we are not ignorant of how he operates. And that's where we need to get into the Word to understand his modus operandi uh, operandus and how he deals with, with us. You just shared that one of his devices is he can put a thought in our mind. Can he make us act on that thought? 
We are personally responsible. We make choices. And that's where the, the aspect comes in. Every decision I make is a choice I make. He can't force me to do anything. Uh, otherwise, if he does that, I cannot be held. I'm not, I'm not comfortable if I am not responsible for my decision making. And that's why I said, Nathan, before, God in his sovereignty has decided to deal with man on the basis of choice. If that were not true, you could not hold man morally responsible for anything that he does. In other words, if I was forced to do anything against my will, how can you hold me accountable for that? A just God has decided, a sovereign God, I will deal with man on the basis of his choice. So when, uh, for example, the lady mentioned that uh, in the beginning that her environment pushed her mm-hmm. into living, that's not true. Okay, it might be difficult, but she made a choice to make that decision. I'm not saying she didn't have an ideal situation, but there were other alternatives that she could have explored rather than find herself shacking up now and uh, being in a, a bondage in a cohabitation situation. There are alternatives to these kind of things. So using the environment to excuse that will never carry any weight with me. The environment is a factor that might lead to you making a choice. But ultimately, you've chosen to make that choice and therefore you're responsible. I know we desire for this program to be as practical as possible. So for the individual who says, Pastor, I have a thought in my head or I had a thought or I have this recurring thought and I want to not act on it, but kind of like the Apostle Paul says, those things I don't want to do, I do, and those things that I do want to do, I don't do. Pastor, how do I make sure that I don't act on that thought the next time it comes into my mind? Well, the answer is the one you just quoted, uh, uh, Romans chapter 7, where Paul is given his experience. But notice at the end he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. You turn to Christ for power to enable you not to do what you're doing. The Christian life is not just about a code that you believe. It's an ongoing relationship with him. So if I need, if I'm being tempted to the point where I got this recurring thought and I'm tempted, I draw my strength from him and I ask him to enable me through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to overcome whatever is there. Remember when we did with Romans chapter 6, we don't have to sin, right? Because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the new nature that separates, yeah. that is there. And uh, so we, we, we really have no excuse for it. The fact is that we yield to it because it satisfies some um, carnal need that we have. And then uh, the, the same devil that tempts us to do it, turn around, and then after we've done it, say, but wait a minute, how can you be a Christian and do that? You can't win this game, Nathan. Unless you stick with the Bible, you'll always be misled because he's much smarter than we are. Our next question comes in via WhatsApp, and it says it's dealing with 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, so... As my practice is, I'm going to read those past verses, and then we'll ask the question. Second Corinthians seven twelve says, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did not for his cause that had done the wrong, for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Verse 13, therefore, we were conformed in your comfort. We were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed. Which passage are you reading? What Corinthians? Uh, Second Corinthians. It's First Corinthians, I think, 7. You're right. Yeah, First Thank Corinthians you. 7, 12 to 16 is what the person wrote. Thank you very much for uh-huh. sparing us all of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16 says... 
But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. For I, if any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. And verse 16 says, For what knowest thou, O wife, where, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or what knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? But you notice it connected that chapter with the other one. So this is trying to relate the two. So read the other one because you'll see what the real question is. In one case, you're told not to have fellowship with unbelievers. In a case where you're talking about in Corinthians 7, they point out that uh, you've got an unbelieving believer, you've got an unbelieving spouse, but yet you're supposed to remain there. So they're trying to connect the two of those references. Is there a contradiction, basically? If you read the question, you'll see what it, yes. what it said. The question says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, the Apostle Paul speaks about the unbelieving spouse in marriage and how they are sanctified by the believing spouse. Yet in 2 Corinthians right. chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, we are admonished for our fellowship with unbelievers. Why then should a marriage be encouraged if one partner is an unbeliever? Second uh, Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. 6, 14 to 18 says... Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness <coughs> with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, and what argument and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Verse 18 says, And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, and saith the Lord Almighty. The point I think the person needs to understand, they're conflating two passages that have nothing to do with each other. Okay. And this is where a great deal of interpretational problems come in, and people always end up with false interpretations. Let's take the passage, for example. First of all, in Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 12 to 16, Paul is dealing with a situation where uh, a believer, uh, a person, two people are married, they're pagans. Now they hear the gospel, and one believes. Okay. The other is not saved. They so started Paul, out as unbelievers. Right, they started unbelievers, because in, in the previous passage, we, we had time to read before that, Paul is dealing with people who are married, uh, two Christians, and he's saying, don't leave, don't divorce, and if you, if you do, you need to come back together. But he's dealing here with a situation where a person who is not, uh, two people who are married, they hear the gospel, one gets saved, the other one is not saved. The question is, what does a Christian do in that situation? Well, there are a lot of people who want to jump out of marriage. So they use that as an excuse. 
Well, my husband is not saved. I'm saved. Uh, I I am not. You know, I I want to save husband or I, I I whatever it is. And Paul is saying, look, if you find yourself in that situation, if the unbeliever wants to stay within the marriage, you got to stay within the marriage. See, whether it be the male or the female. However, if the unbeliever want to leave the marriage. They can lead the marriage as well. You are not in bondage now, and that's where you get the right abandonment now gives you the right to divorce. The same word that Paul said when you're married, you're in bondage. Same word Paul uses. But if the unsaved person wants to stay in the marriage, you don't use your conversion as an excuse to get out of a marriage. That's the first thing Paul is saying. And Paul points out this here, look. The reason why you do it, you may be a difficult situation, but you do it in the interest of his salvation. So there's a salvific interest in the redemption of that person who you're married to. And I, it's hard for me to conceive of two people who are married for a number of years before they were saved and didn't have any kind of love between the two of them. So now you got saved, you don't have any love for his welfare, his eternal welfare. So that's why Paul is saying you should have a, that kind of thing. But again, so that is one thing. As Paul is saying, they remain in the marriage, work out the marriage, stay with the unsaved person in the interests of of his saves being saved, but not only that, the interest of the children. He will talk about later on the, the children are sanctified, the possibility of the children being saved because you remain in the marriage uh, uh, might result in his salvation, the unsaved husband, and your children. Is it practical? Have you seen this played out in other people's lives? Have Have you observed a spouse being married because someone stuck with it, or is this just a cloud nine I've uh, never I've never known of uh, any of this situation here myself I've never come to anybody who said well I now got saved so therefore I can leave my husband I've never run in that okay. situation but again <clears throat> again in the first century world um, this is what was happening and there's no doubt that it probably happens in the 21st century world as well people right. who just want to get out of a difficult marriage and they use the fact that they got saved to do that but Paul is saying no 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 you have to think beyond your own uh your own personal welfare and look at the welfare of your partner and the welfare of the children. He's, he's brought in the horizons to embrace, uh, as the Bible said, is God, others, and then self. Don't put self at the center. Think about others as well. Now, so in one case, Paul is saying that you've got an unequally yoked situation, but Paul is saying staying within the marriage. So what the person is now going now is taking Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul is talking about... Um, um, not having fellowship and concord and communion. He said, w- w- with the temple of God and with idols, etc. Paul is dealing with something completely different. No. Paul is dealing with the problem that in Corinth that he dealt with, first of all, where the Corinthians, <laughs> coming out of paganism, were still visiting the temples. They were enjoying the festivities in the temple and so on and so forth. And uh, Paul is saying to them, you need to separate yourself from going into these. It's like a Christian after you say, no, want to go into the bar and sit down and drink with the guys and have beers and stuff like that. A similar situation. So Paul is saying to these people, no, you don't have fellowship with the ungodly by going into the temple and, and, and these festivities any longer. You have to separate. See, from that which is, and then Paul talked about Belial, what fellowship have um, Christ with Belial, what, what, what uh, communion have light with darkness, what fellowship have uh, righteousness with unrighteousness, what, temp, what, um, what agreement have the temple of God with idols. Clearly, Paul is dealing with the matter of going back to these pagan festivals, etc., etc. So, in one case, he's talking about the believers separating from pagan religions, false religions. 
In the other case, he's talking about marriage. You can't conflate the two. You can't use the fact that he's saying, well, you know, you can't go into the pagan temple, you can't do the worship, you shouldn't be involved with idolatry, and then somehow, by some magic, transfer that note to marriage. He's dealing with two separate topics and give two separate responses, and by conflating the two, you lead to a false interpretation that somehow there's a biblical contradiction. This is what happens again, Nathan, with people who just find a verse, a passage, don't look at the context whatsoever, don't look at the purpose of the book that is writing, and then come up with all these kind of bogus answers and just mislead people in these kind of things where they go down a, a false trail. And that's why it is so important to know how to properly interpret the Bible. One of the greatest things that a person can ever learn is to learn the principles of hermeneutics when it comes to the Bible. If you don't do that, you'll always end up where people end up with it. I would say this again. This is where a lot of the false doctrines from the cults have come from. A lot of these people had no Bible knowledge whatsoever in terms of uh, they had no theological training. I'm not saying that only theologians know what the Bible teaches, right? But if a person is going to teach some new doctrine or come up with some new system, clearly he should at least know some theology and should at least know some of the biblical languages. And uh, a lot of the cults end up uh, doing this. And uh, it's, it's trying to reverse that now, after people have been in it for years and years and years, it's like asking a Catholic who finally sees that Mary is, can't help them to just turn from Mary to Christ. It's very, very difficult. It's like, I've believed this all my life now. And it's like ripping a whole part of them out of this whole. But again, the only answer to that is going back to biblical truth and let the Bible be the final authority in your life. That way, it's not just the pastor or the church or whatever. It's what the Bible teaches on this matter that guides your understanding. The Bible, it must be elevated above every man, every church. It's the final authority for our faith and our practice. We have had a lot of interaction in tonight's episode, a lot of questions, and we appreciate that. We had so much interaction, in fact, that we didn't get to our topic of sexual abuse of minors. We will pick that up, Lord willing, next week. But as we wrap up this episode in the last two minutes, Pastor, what would you say to the individual who says, Pastor Murphy, I hear you talking about this passage, what Paul is saying, if your husband or your wife is not a believer and you are, but what should I do in 2022 if I realize I married the wrong person? Well, if you married the wrong person, you stay with the wrong person. You're married. You've made vows before God, and the Bible said God hates divorce. The thing about it, you need to make your marriage work. And some change will take place in the marriage if one of the individual changes. And if you're a believer, that has to be you. And then you live out your faith before that person. You can't just be concerned about... Um, sexual intimacy and stuff like that. You've got to be concerned about the spiritual welfare of the person. Now, I'm not suggesting you stay in an abusive situation. If a woman comes to me telling me, Pastor, my husband beats me and mistreats me, that's a different thing altogether. My advice in a case like that would be separate, move out. Okay, Don't stay in that situation because eventually they'll take you out in a box and put you in the morgue. It's going to happen. But again, if you're living in a difficult situation, he's not abusing you uh, <coughs> physically. You might say some things that might offend you. But again, we must learn to suffer for Christ in the interest of the welfare of others. We must not always look for the easy way out uh, when we make decisions like that. And uh, we might work towards his conversion. And you work towards his conversion not by preaching to him, by the way. 
but being kind and thoughtful and being responsible and doing what a wife should do towards him. Sooner or later, he will feel the impact that you have changed. You're a different person uh, and you're really, really trained. And that seeing that will result in some kind of movement towards transformation in his whole life. You become a testament, a witness. Read what Peter says uh, in this in First Peter about how a wife can win her husband. He says, by a meek and acquired spirit. And as Sarah, she called him, and now she lived in submission and obedience to him. In 20 seconds, what about the wife who is a Christian, wants to go to church, but her unbelieving husband says no? My advice to that would be to sit down with him and have a thorough talk with him. Uh, but I feel you should be in church. You shouldn't be in church every Sunday. You could say to him, look, I'll go to church this Sunday. I'll stay home next Sunday. But something has to be worked out. Thank you for listening, and be sure you join us next week. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.